This edition of The Recap was first broadcast on the 5th of December 2015 on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Ryland and welcome to The Recap, bringing you the highlights from the past week's live news and analysis programs broadcast right here on Monocle 24. Over the next half hour, I'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from The Globalist, The Briefing, The Dory House and, of course, The Monocle Daily. Coming up, as the United Kingdom launches airstrikes in Syria and Germany approves the deployment of 1,200 soldiers to the anti-ISIS conflict, we look at what this says about Germany's willingness to play a role in the fight and ask if it will open a new chapter for the military across the continent. And as NATO reaches out to Montenegro, we ask if this is the wisest step when Western relations with Moscow are at their most delicate in a generation. Plus, is a breakthrough finally in sight in the search for MH370? It looks like both engines had a, a flame-out, meaning that they ran out of fuel, but it sounds like in an uncontrolled manner. Also ahead, Yahoo's identity crisis takes another twist, with reports that the web company is considering selling its core business. And we'll also check in with Robert Bound at Art Basel, Miami Beach. All that and much more coming up in the next half hour right here on The Recap with me, Ben Rylan. On Friday, the German parliament approved government plans to join the military campaign against the so-called Islamic State in Syria. Germany does not intend to bomb ISIS targets in Syria, but will send tornado reconnaissance aircraft, a frigate and 1,200 soldiers to the region. It follows the attacks in Paris three weeks ago and Britain's vote to send warplanes to bomb ISIS areas in Syria. On Monday, it already seemed probable that Germany was going to join the campaign against ISIS, and on that day's edition of Maduri House, Tom Edwards was joined by Nina Schick, Director of Communications at the EU policy think tank Open Europe, and Jane Kinnanmont, Deputy Head of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, to discuss what the decision would mean for Germany. I think it's the beginning of quite a serious change. You know, Germany uh, has been a country that hasn't traditionally been involved in these kinds of intervention. It doesn't have a colonial past in the Middle East. They have vaunted the fact that they were part of the Iran nuclear deal to show that they have diplomatic credentials in the region, but their foreign minister and others are also adamant that diplomacy needs some kind of force to back it up with and that you can't have soft power without a degree of hard. What might be tricky is looking at where the forces are going to be based. Turkey and Jordan have both been mooted, but Germany does also have a large Kurdish lobby mm. at home. In some ways, Jordan might be the, the easier option. Nina, what do you make of this in terms of if we look at you know what it says about Germany's willingness to, to, to play a role, whatever it looks like, even if it involves the military, you know, we're not used to having that conversation. Can we read something into the bigger picture for Germany and what this represents? Well, obviously Germany has been a very 
pacifistic country in recent history for obvious reasons. And I'm half German. So it's interesting to see that there were polls recently after Paris. And I think that was really the changing point where the majority of the population was saying they were in favor of the Bundeswehr stepping in and somehow fighting against IS. But it's still worth pointing out that this is a very small intervention when you look at it relatively. It's only 1,200 troops. It's one ship and a few tornado jets for reconnaissance and air refueling, etc. Nonetheless, I think we have seen Germany becoming much more active, perhaps reluctantly, when it comes to foreign policy, even before this happened in Paris, you know, with Ukraine, Germany was a key leading broker in striking a peace deal there, even though, well, the unrespected ceasefire. And recently, they've also sent troops to Mali. So this is an interesting intervention. It's definitely not insignificant. It will be their second largest intervention after the troops that they deployed in Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. So, yeah, it's significant. And what's the view within Germany? Is there a comfort level now with troops being deployed where it's part of a multilateral force? It makes the decision easier. I mean, is that some national view, if we can characterise it Absolutely. that way? I think it's essential for the Germans that it's, you know, they're part of a NATO force or they're part of a Western mm. coalition. It's not just German troops going in. And as I understand it, they will be very much in a support role, supporting the French military. The interesting thing is that, as I said, I think Paris was the changing point and the German constitution it actually said the army can only be used when they need to defend the borders of Germany. But in recent times, that interpretation has become looser and looser. So I think it's very important for the Germans to feel that this intervention is done on constitutional grounds and is in line with international law. Well, there may be an issue of generational change here, as fewer people directly remember the Second World War and its aftermath. Let's not forget that in Japan now also we see a, a prime minister who's trying to test the limits of that uh, pacifistic constitution that they have. That was a highlight from Monday's edition of Midori House. Nina Schick and Jane Kinnanmont as Tom Edwards' guests. This is the recap on Monocle 24 with me, Ben Ryland. It was on Wednesday night when the British Parliament voted in favour of airstrikes on ISIS in Syria. Within hours, the RAF began bombing missions against ISIS targets. Regular Monocle 24 contributors and German journalists Sebastian Borger, London correspondent for Berliner Zeitung, and Imke Henkel, a lecturer in journalism at the University of Lincoln and a correspondent for Desire, joined Monocle's Fanula Sweeney to discuss the British Parliament's decision and the upcoming German vote. Genuinely, I think the German debate is much more focused on solidarity with France. I thought that was lacking in Britain particularly in the Labour Party, which got quite emotional appeals from their socialist sister party in France, from the president downwards, and totally ignored it, apart from Hilary Benn in his barnstorming speech at the end. Britain overall seems to me to be turning in on itself and not really considering the European solidarity anymore. What is lacking from the German debate is you've got to tell people, and particularly the soldiers who are actually going, what the direct link is. Cameron clearly talked about the threat to Britain that Dash IS is posing. Um, I think Angela Merkel will have to do something similar. Certainly, I think it is seen in Germany as well that there is a potential danger of an attack. Of course, it is more acute in Britain because here we had attacks, in Germany we had not, so far, luckily. And there is more resistance in the German public, really. Traditionally, Germans were far more hesitant about military participation than Britain, and therefore, of course, Chancellor Merkel 
would have to explain that more to their people. Does Germany see itself in this for the long haul? There are those in Britain now who believe that the UK is set for a long-term engagement in the region. I don't think anybody has any doubts about that. But it's always hesitant and it's always as few boots on the ground as possible. And of course, the military is dealing with its own problems because we have about 50% of our planes are out of action because the supply chains don't work, the money isn't there. Germany isn't putting enough money towards its military. So there's a lot, a lot of work to do for Angela Merkel, if indeed uh, she wants to do more. Imke Henkel, do you see Germany being more outward-looking, being more involved in the international community than it had been in the past? Well, yes, I would say slowly but surely we go there because Germany had to play a huge role within international conflicts, although always peaceful contexts. Look at the whole euro crisis, the whole engagement with Greece, look at the whole Ukraine crisis, where Britain actually was notably absent. I think there's a slow evolvement within Germany towards the acceptance of also military involvement in other countries. And I think part of what might make a difference is really that now we have a a professional army and not a drafted army anymore, which is a recent change under the Merkel government. And that is the same situation as in Britain. That was a highlight from Thursday's edition of The Globalist. German journalists Inke Henkel and Sebastian Borger with Monocle's Vanilla Sweeney. Well, let's leave Syria and ISIS now to continue with a discussion from Tuesday's edition of Midori House. NATO has identified its latest potential partner in Montenegro, ironically perhaps a country where the alliance bombed 17 years ago. That was when it was part of the former Yugoslavia and involved in the conflict in Kosovo, but NATO's Secretary-General says a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then. Monocle's Tyg Enride and his guests Peter Fleming, Professor of Business and Society at Cass Business School, and Michael Goldfarb, author and broadcaster for Politico.eu, discussed the formal invitation on Tuesday's edition of Midori House. When we say NATO, we should emphasize that NATO is very much US-dominated. And the US needs to work with Russia on a wide range of issues. NATO is also engaged in a tense situation still over Ukraine, although much of the international focus now is on Russia's involvement in Syria. But having said that, it's different than the other possible joinee of NATO, which is Georgia, and which sits right on the border with Russia. If you look at the map, Greece, and then you have Montenegro, and then Albania. Albania and Greece are in, or is it vice versa? I can never remember. Anyway, we're talking about the eastern shores of the Adriatic coast, and it will just be a single membership bloc, because Croatia is is a member now, and, and Greece, and Albania. So in some respects, it's just filling in the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle, and it is as far southwest in the Slavic world as you can get from Russia. I think it'll end up queuing, huffing and puffing, but there are much, much more important things to be discussed between the US and Russia, or NATO and Russia, for that matter. There certainly are, but I mean, let's talk more. You raised the point about Georgia. Montenegro is not Georgia, but then Georgia probably is a lot more in common with Ukraine. And I suppose if there were a deepening or extended hand, extended further towards Georgia, that could really upset the the cars. It would be quite an amazing, you know, well, this was called provocative, but that would truly be provocative given the situation around the area. I think if it's the step in the expansion, you know, I remember reading a book when I was in my undergrad, you know, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. He said NATO had 
It's an institution that's over. It's a vestige of a Cold War. I'm just amazed how all of these kind of roles have just sprung up over the last five years with Putin, and it's, it's quite astounding. Yeah, it was easy for Francis Fukuyama. Do you know how many times when there was three and a half minutes of dead air on National Public <laughs> Radio, and I was the London correspondent, I would be asked to, can you do a Wither NATO piece? Wow. Okay, yeah. you know, but in the end, it became necessary because this three years after Fukuyama published his book, Europe was deeply involved with the Bosnian Civil War. And in the end, it was NATO as an institution, although it was mostly American pilots, that brought an end to that war by finally bombing the Serbs off the heights around Sarajevo. You know, so it exists. It's an alliance that, for all it has not been called upon thankfully, in its existence, is actually an institution that has survived, although, like all of these institutions created after World War II, it is showing its age and rust. But clearly showing its potency in the fact that Moscow is so opposed to its expansion, and along with Montenegro's invitation tomorrow, the ministers are expected to reiterate their open-door policy towards Georgia. Let's just talk about Montenegro's bid to join. You have to wonder if the mood behind it has been accelerated by Russia's provocative behaviour amongst other countries in its neighbourhood. There's certainly been a lot of agitation around that and the timing, I think, it's not a coincidence and it's an escalation of the tensions. It's people taking sides, really. It's like a schoolyard fight, you know. Mm, Good way of putting it. I'm taking this side rather than your side. You know, it's a case of my friend's enemy is also my friend, you know, and that makes things very, very difficult to sort out. Yeah, all decisions are tactical. This week, Mm. you know, Peter and I are friends, you know, and then, you know, we get our problems sorted and then we can go back to our usual (laughs) antipathies, you know. (laughs) And one one wonders how, as this gets more and more escalated, how to diffuse it. That was a highlight from Tuesday's edition of Midori House. Monocle's Ty Genwright joined by Peter Fleming, Professor of Business and Society at Cass Business School, and Michael Goldfarb from politico.eu. Up next, as the world's eyes are eagerly focused on the COP21 climate change conference, we'll hear how it's being covered in the Chinese and Indian press. If you're after a soundtrack to your working day, look no further than Monocle 24's globally-minded playlist. We play the very best upbeat music from around the world, around the clock, whether that's jazz from Japan, pop from Paris, house from Hamburg, or soul from Seoul. It's all picked by our team and presented by our editors. So get lost in music with Monocle 24's playlist right here, day and night, on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Recap, looking back at our week gone by in live news shows and analysis broadcast right here on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Rylan. The climate change conference in Paris last week saw world leaders negotiating to set a target for limiting a rise in global temperature and the use of fossil fuels. There are big stakes for countries such as China and India, and we thought we'd look at how the conference is reported in both countries. Regular Monocle 24 contributors, the journalist Shimantha Asakan, former India correspondent for The Economist and Reuters, and Roderick Y, an associate fellow in the Asia program at Chatham House, joined Monocle's Fanula Sweeney to examine how the national press in both countries covered the event. I think Modi sort of very much presented himself as the figure who give the developing country perspective, which is to say you can't really put exactly the same demands on us, countries who are trying to come up to your level of infrastructure and development, You can't constrain us in the same ways when you're already developed and now trying to sort of innovate in terms of how to be green about what you're doing. And I think China, Roderick White, would also be following that same line. 
How's this conference going down in the Chinese media? I think there are two main aspects to it in the Chinese media. First of all, it's the the Chinese president attended the conference and gave a, an opening speech. And that dominates anything. Anything the leader does dominates the papers. But behind that is this idea shared with India about common and but differentiated responsibilities that the developed world should be taking the lead. But in this case, China showing that itself, that China has already taken uh, very many measures to combat climate change, is taking it very seriously and that if anything goes wrong with this conference it won't be China's fault. China is trying to make a really positive contribution to this and that's the sort of general tenor of the press reports in China. And Shemantha, is the Indian press as universal in its praise of its leader as the <laughs> Chinese press is? From what I've seen, yes, and I mean, you know, in the Times of India, which is the most widely read English language newspaper in India, they put out an editorial yesterday saying that they support this stance. And, you know, it wasn't sort of done in a sucking up to the prime minister sort of way or over the top, but it's just making this reasonable case that India's at a very different stage to richer countries. And most importantly, if you look at cumulative emissions, India's contribution to global emissions is tiny, even though it's currently the third biggest emitter. It's Mm -hmm. only 3% of cumulative emissions over the last 150 years or so. I think a lot of the Indian press is very focused on just what's happening within India, you know, to make a sort of obvious point, but it's just such a huge country and there's so much going on. And because of the democracy, there's all these different players arguing about things constantly. So I think from what I've seen, the press has very much moved on. Modi left yesterday and the press has moved on quite quickly. And even when he was there, a lot of the focus was on the fact that he had what seemed to be quite a warm conversation with Pakistan's leader. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, seemed more exciting to most Indian readers than announcements about the environment. How relevant in China is COP21 to ordinary people? Well, of course, by a terrible irony, Beijing has uh, been suffering its worst smogs for years in the last few days. So it's in people's faces very much, uh, the problems of environment. And there is criticism of Beijing government in particular for failing to take effective measures to deal with this problem. So, I mean, on the one hand, China really does want to make a positive contribution, realises, I mean, China does realise that environmental questions are going to be key to China's future development and has written a programme into their new five-year plan and all these kind of things. But the reality on the ground is that there is still this huge conflict between pressures for development and the environmental consequences of them. Roderick Wai and Shamantha Asakan there with Fanula Sweeney on The Globalist. Now, it certainly feels like a search without an end, but the ongoing hunt for whatever remains of missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 could finally be nearing a conclusion. Australian officials say they're confident they're now close to a breakthrough. A new analysis of the data shows the plane is most likely in the southern end of the Indian Ocean. While fresh off a flight from Sydney, Monocle's editor-in-chief Tyler Brulé joined Fanula Sweeney and Sebastian Borger on Friday's edition of The Globalist. The Deputy Prime Minister at Warren Trust held a press conference with some new facts. And one of the interesting things is, you know, so much of the discussion about this aircraft, you know, just reminding everyone, coming up to two years ago that MH370 went missing on its flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, made this sort of dramatic left-hand turn. Of course, we've had this search in the South Indian Ocean. The Australian Transportation Safety Board is saying now that it looks like both engines had a a flame-out, meaning that they ran out of fuel. But it sounds like in an uncontrolled manner, a lot of the discussion 
Russian had been, well, that maybe the pilot had actually gently put this aircraft down on the sea, hence the fact that there was no debris field, because of course, if a plane sort of breaks up, you would have had, obviously, you know, more parts, uh, you would have had a, a fuel and debris field. So it's interesting. It doesn't mean that, of course, potentially the people in the cockpit are off the hook. What it has done, though, through satellite and meteorological data, it's allowed them to really narrow in on what is going to be the revised search field now. And yet the search, they say, will end regardless in June 2016? Yeah, it looks like it will end, uh, you know, June, July. It's interesting also to hear Mr. Truss sort of use the word, you know, now we're very optimistic that they're going to to find it. You know, this reduces things, I think, by another 50%. And of course, seas get better coming out of winter. Weather was Mm. lovely indeed in Australia. So this, I think, obviously gives them a bit of a clear field to resume their hunt. It is extraordinary, is it not, that in this day and age where we think everything is tagged from our phones, our location services, that a plane of this size with so many people on board can just disappear. And still we have to remember that, of course, there was this flapper on that was found, uh, you know, washed up in Réunion. And and of course, and we know that it, it drifted very, very far. The aircraft nowhere near there. But you never left nothing else in almost two years. And how China. can they tell us that there was this flame out? The flame out. They said it's because, I guess, we heard a lot of stories about the last satellite transmission, but I guess they've been doing more interrogation. And now there was obviously another message obviously sent from the aircraft that, you know, these these ACARS messages must have told them that these two engines went at a certain time. They believe that maybe one went a little earlier than the other one, mm. which means that also the aircraft might have changed course slightly, being on sort of single power. But eerie, and it comes back to a very early theory that we had, that when an aircraft has a massive decompression, what it does is it automatically makes a hard left-hand turn. So if, if indeed that's what happened, that there was no oxygen, you know, this was just a truly horrible accident, then the aircraft would make a hard left-hand turn and would fly you know, unaided until it ran out of fuel. So maybe this did happen. It still raised the question mark then, you know, why no debris field? That was, of course, Tyler Brule joining Fanula Sweeney and Sebastian Borger on Friday's edition of The Globalist. And you can hear more of that discussion over at monocle.com. You're listening to The Recap on Monocle 24. Time now for a highlight from Wednesday's edition of The Briefing. Describing Yahoo often presents some difficulty. Is it a media company? Is it an online social platform? Or is it e-commerce? Well, it was once considered a pioneering giant in the world of web companies. Yahoo has been attempting to quell its existential crisis for some time. But since current CEO Marissa Mayer came to the helm three years ago, no major breakthroughs have managed to turn things around. There was a high-profile recruitment of US TV journalist Katie Couric, the acquisition of blogging site Tumblr, and of course its stake in e-commerce site Alibaba. But nothing has given the company the clarity required to focus on its tangible future. Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck spoke to our tech correspondent David Phelan on Wednesday's edition of The Briefing. People don't really use the internet in the same way now as they did when Yahoo first came along. Now, people use it in different ways. So there's certainly been a lot of focus on what Marissa Mayer calls mavens. That's an acronym, not a very good one, for mobile, video, native advertising and social. One of the questions being raised by one of the commenters today was, you know, what is the point of Yahoo? It's very difficult to pin down. That is part of the problem, that its identity is very hard to elicit. Marissa Mayer said that she wanted people to turn to Yahoo to inform, correct, connect and entertain, which is 
as vague as it gets. But if it didn't exist, is there anything that it's doing that actually people would say, okay, there is a gap in my digital life that I kind of really miss? Because part of the real kind of intrinsic value of this company is just the fact that it managed to get people to sign on to Yahoo accounts for their email addresses many, many, many years ago. And it still has these people kind of captive, many of whom have rather terrible email addresses, by the way. But anyway... That is their captive audience. Yes, that's definitely the case. AOL was the same. It was a giant that crumbled as times changed. And I don't think there's any one thing that you would point to with Yahoo. Obviously, Tumblr is an important thing. Well, if they sold that, that would survive. And having that kind of video content like Katie Couric is important as well. But all those things are done elsewhere. And it only matters if you can then attract advertisers who want to be in your space and give you loads of cash. That is their other real issue, is that if you've got advertising dollars to spend in the digital realm, you're more likely going to stick it on Facebook or Google than you are going to be on Yahoo. Is that part of their problem as well? They're just not that sexy for advertisers. Partly. I mean, they have seen an uptick in one way this year when they persuaded Mozilla that makes the browser Firefox to make Yahoo its default search engine for the next five years. And that has taken their searches up to about 12-13% in North America, which is 3 or 4% higher than it was. So those things are still working for it. And that's also the importance of this Maven's terrible acronym. That has seen a 43% increase in the last financial but that's still only a third of revenue, so on its own it's not enough to turn things around. That was Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck there, speaking to the tech correspondent David Phelan on Wednesday's edition of The Briefing. Well, we're off to Miami now for the 13th edition of Art Basel, Miami Beach. Monocle's culture editor Robert Bound was at the fair, which was in full swing after opening to the public on Thursday. On that day's edition of the Monocle Daily, Rob spoke to art advisor Todd Levin, who runs the Levin Art Group. The people to know if you have a spare wad of cash burning a hole in your pocket that you'd perhaps like to invest in something tasteful to put on your walls. Art fairs these days seem to be more about product and branding or have like at least turned into that sort of dynamic. So what one seems to see here, you have to remember that there's 250 booths, let's say 15 pieces in each booth, so... Yeah. 3,000 works, and with all that work vying for your attention, and you're only going to have 10 or 20 seconds perhaps to look at a work before moving on to the next, artists seem to be under pressure to create works that have what we might call wall power, kind of... This stuff that pops off the... Pops off the wall at you. They have sort of a bling-like sensibility to it. Perhaps the scale is oversized. But there's something about it that is hopefully going to grab you by the lapels and slow you down if just for a few seconds to say, look at me. Curatorially, you could say, well, that's not such a bad thing, because if it pops out from one of the 250 booths here in the convention center in Miami, then maybe you're going to love it for the rest of your life hanging over your fireplace. But is that the thing, that there is such a sort of clamor of attention for the artworks that actually some of the booths that have quite a sparing collection of works sometimes work very well because it's kind of a bit of a calm from the storms. I concur. To a large extent, much of this sort of art that we're talking about is what I refer to as art fair art. It's art that's made specifically to look good in this particular application. The problem is, is that more and more, particularly at art fairs, art and money are exchanging roles. Money is being translated into art, which is wonderful, but art is more and more being translated into money and becoming commonplace. And that's the negative side of this sort of situation. 
we'll go back to your role as art advisor running the Levin Art Group. So when you're walking around this week at the mm-hmm. convention centre with clients, how often do you have to steer people or, or do people want to be steered in a certain sort of curatorial direction from your point of view? Well, I carry a very, very industrial level taser with me. So if anybody goes <laughs> off, they just simply get a quick prod and they're back on track immediately. And there it is. Um, but in reality, the truth is, is that the clients that I'm privileged to work with, I really prefer to have them look at these art fairs, such as Basel and Fries yeah. in your hometown, as educational modalities as opposed to transactional modalities. If they do that, if they understand that they're here to look and learn and to have the opportunity to have all these marvelous gallerists gather together for them to have discussions with that are meaningful and they can go literally from gallery to gallery around the world in a day, this is the real value of the fair. The transactional aspect, the buying of things, is pretty simplistic. That was Monocle's culture editor Robert Bound there speaking to art advisor Todd Levin at Art Basel, Miami Beach. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of The Recap. The show was put together by Marcus Hippie and Weidong Lin. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of our live news programs from across the schedule here on Monocle 24. But for now, from me, Ben Ryland, thanks for listening. Goodbye.